Welcome everyone to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space and happy Valentine's Day. Uh, I am your host, one of your hosts, Carter Laren, and I am joined as always by my co-host, the bad mamma jamma, Carrie Smith. Carrie? Hi, Carter. Hi, guys. Carter's very today, sick Carrie? today. I'm good. You? I'm so sorry I'm laughing. I am. Your face and the way you sound, I can tell how sick you are. It's not my best day ever. Uh, I'm on enough Benadryl to kill a horse um, and still kind of swollen and puffy. And I'm allergic to something. It might be the prevalence of social justice in our culture, uh, so which sorry. which means I'm doomed, basically. So, um, yeah. So, Carrie, um, we're going to talk about Valentine's Day. Oh, your dog has something. <laughs> This, okay, is, this, <laughs> this show is starting off exactly as I imagined it might go. <laughs> and and there goes Carrie. Um, yeah, we so we wanted to talk about Valentine's Day. It's I, it's not actually something that I normally celebrate, so it's kind of weird for me to talk about it. I've always been of I don't actually I don't know why this happened. Probably I had some girlfriend at some point who had high expectations and my uh my response was just to <laughs> just not celebrate at all but for as long as I can remember in my adult life I've not celebrated Valentine's Day I kind of view it as a way for Hallmark to make money and you should appreciate your your romantic partner um every day of the year and and celebrate special days so I'm not really I'm not really a Valentine's Day kind of guy <clears throat> however uh I don't think there's anything wrong with Valentine's Day, and I get why a lot of people want to want to celebrate it. And I, it is under attack in a way that makes me want to defend it now. Um, Carrie, what's your relationship to Valentine's Day? Well, I don't. I mean, I'll celebrate it if I'm in a relationship with someone. You're the first person who told me that Valentine's Day is usually more centered around the woman, with the man buying the woman stuff. Because I always assumed. You both buy each other stuff. <laughs> I don't know why. You're such, you're such a good feminist. <laughs> I guess because I was a good feminist. Yeah, I think I told you the the least romantic Valentine's Day gift I ever got my ex husband was a paper shredder, but uh, but he needed one. But but we always, it wasn't like about me. It was about us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I would appreciate um, a paper shredder. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. but I don't have a, I don't have this. Yeah, it's about consumerism, totally. A lot of stuff in our culture is, and a lot of other holidays are. You know, Christmas has become about consumerism. Um, right. It but, doesn't mean uh, you don't celebrate it. But. Right. And and what's funny is, out of all the holidays, so SJWs, yeah, they definitely, it seems like a lot of them are very miserable all year, but especially on holidays, that's why you see all these opinion pieces about why different holidays are problematic and how to have, they don't call it this, but essentially how to have the worst Thanksgiving dinner ever. They're always, you know, there's like why, why you shouldn't celebrate the 4th of July. Like there's always, doesn't matter what the holiday is. Well, that one's obvious because it's uh, all about America. So, yeah. They just yeah. don't like, they don't like fun. And so um, I think out of all of them, Valentine's day, they seem to be the least, the, the, there seem to be the least amount of articles condemning it, but there are some out there. Like there's one I pulled up on Bustle about eight reasons why Valentine's Day is a toxic holiday. Um, oh, that's so, a good one. Yeah, that's they definitely one. do go so, after it. 
By the way, Keith is telling us, by the way, anyone in chat, which right now is is Keith for all I can tell, maybe there's some other people. Um, Hi, feel free to to give us direction today. It's it's a, it's a struggle. Keith once got uh, his wife a gas grill for Valentine's Day. Look at um, that. I think that's a pretty awesome present, Keith. Uh, and I'm and knowing uh, knowing Grace, I bet she appreciated it. So, um, but uh, yeah, I I think it is mostly a thing where guys do stuff for women, right? I I don't. You don't hear guys say like, "Oh, she didn't really celebrate." Like guys don't complain about how women celebrate Valentine's Day generally, but the reverse does happen, right? You see that in our culture. And I was telling you the other day, Carrie, that. Actually, um, years ago, I uh, I spent a lot of time in in Tokyo, and I had a Japanese girlfriend, and she informed me that uh, they also have something called White Day in Japan, in which is like she said it was the reverse Valentine's Day, which was the the women are supposed to do something nice for their guys, um, which was cool, I guess. But uh, they were definitely yeah. feminists would definitely have a problem with that, I think. Yes. Um, First of all, it's heteronormative. Yes. <laughs> so just to let's just um, just for context, Valentine's Day, uh, I, I looked it up just because I was curious. Uh, it traces its origins back to Lupercalia, a Roman festival dedicated to fertility. Um, and uh, and then the celebrations of that day faded with the growth of Christianity until it was uh, revived. Um, in 496 AD and a feast for St. Valentine. Really? So, because mm -hmm. bustle doesn't include any of that in their history about Valentine's Day. This is what, what they, say. they say. They say it's patriarchal. Uh, quote, if you've never explored the historical context behind Valentine's Day, get ready to be horrified. It's actually part of patriarchal conditioning that permeates our culture. Quote, it is mainly about fertility and the promise of offspring, which secures the society and the city-state. Vasiliki Kotini, <laughs> assistant professor of English and comparative literature, told the American University in Cairo, quote, this is because offspring means citizens, and in the case of male offspring, it means soldiers. It also means continually continuity of the family name and familial wealth that we passed on to the new generation. If there were ever a reason to shun Valentine's Day, this is the best one I've ever heard. And then it goes on about how you should just celebrate. What, that it's about fertility? That's the reason? <laughs> that supposedly is patriarchal. So Having kids is patriarchal? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I read some, we can get into this if, if, if we need to later, but I read a, uh, I read an article. Let me, let me look up the title of this article. <clears throat> it was from the 70s, but this is the kind of, this craziness does actually exist. And, and so uh, this was called Lesbians in the Class Position of Women by Margaret Small. I think it was in 1975 but she has a whole thing about how marxists don't get it because um they don't understand that uh they don't understand the plight of women and uh her view was it she says in classical marxist terms the relationship of wife to husband is one of slavery in terms of the oppression of women heterosexuality is the ideology of male supremacy and she has this entire argument which i find fascinating for its um inanity if that's a word. Um, she, her argument is because women have children, women are ultimately the producers of everything. 
And so anything and and her she has she states some wild she makes some wild claims without any supporting evidence. Like she says, her her legitimate view of the of the evolution of the species is that guys were kind of because guys weren't tied down by childbirth, they were out doing whatever, just you know hanging out. And women invented agriculture, invented everything, took care of kids, built all the surplus, got all the food, did everything, and the guys would like wander back to the homestead once in a while, steal the surplus and go trade it with other guys from other, uh, who had also stolen the surplus from their uh, enslaved women. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinatingly demented read, um, but- there are, a lot of, there are a lot of female chauvinists out there. <laughs> we only ever hear about male chauvinists, but there are a lot of female chauvinists. Yes. Um, Tamara, we're going to get, I, I do want to talk about Valentine's Day in school. So thank you for bringing it up. Tamara brought this up. Um, and Keith is telling us, yeah, I didn't read this part about Valentine's Day, Keith, but it's good to say. He says, St. Valentine was arrested for marrying couples during a period when marriage was banned because too many young men were chasing women rather than joining the army. He was sentenced to clubbing death. Um, but this, the second part that you're writing, Keith, is not true. So there's a myth that says he, on the day he was sentenced, he, wrote, he signed a letter, your Valentine to a girl who befriended him. Uh, apparently that's a myth, at least what I heard. But anyway, regardless, it doesn't really matter what the origin is. The recent origin is Hallmark wants to, you to buy cards and, uh, you know, Godiva wants you to buy chocolate and, and, uh, and thus we have Valentine's Day. But so I, I looked up, you know, in, in prep for this, I did I did look up some of the complaints about Valentine's Day. And um, I just want to point out some, I think it's funny, you know, I don't mind, there's going to be crazy articles by people about, like you said, the Bustle article. And and uh, there's, a, there's actually a blog that's My Feminist Valentine's from a couple years ago, which I can talk about in a minute. But in classical, and the classical quality and style of mainstream media, CNN's article was why flowers get so expensive on Valentine's Day. And I guess, I guess if you're a regular CNN listener, this is baffling to you because you've never heard about the law of supply and demand. And so an entire article needs to be written about why flowers are expensive on Valentine's Day, uh, which I find pretty amusing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> okay, so let's we should just go over what some of the complaints against Valentine's Day are, because um, at the core, they're actually complaints about love and heterosexual love in particular, um, long-term committed love. Um, that's kind of that's kind of the, uh, the 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 reason people are social justice type people are are upset about Valentine's Day. So um, you know, I, one place that I started was there's this. Someone is by an anonymous feminist, of course, because uh, she doesn't want to admit that this is her. But a couple of years ago, uh, 2017, she writes, um, My Feminist Valentines. And it's really interesting because, or at least it's interesting to me, she says, um, let, me, let me quote this here. <laughs> she basically is saying, um, I know Valentine's Day is a consumerist holiday personified by patriarchal and heteronormative traditions, which reinforces sexist stereotypes. And I'm a strong, independent woman who doesn't need a man, right? Um, but she describes herself 
and what she's doing on, and she kind of goes into how women are exploited and blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> her first sentence is, as I write this article, I realize that I'm a textbook cliche. I'm sitting alone at home watching Netflix with a bar of chocolate and swiping my way through Tinder, one squatting with induced animals, whilst traveling picture at a time, crying, nay weeping, whilst on my period. That's uh, sad. That's why she doesn't like Valentine's Day. I don't think you need to read the rest of uh, of the article there. Carrie, why? What did you find out from Bustle? What are the What are the big? I've got some some notes here about what people don't like about Valentine's Day. But what do What do you find? What did you find? Uh, well, not just Bustle. Everydayfeminism.com, which is the worst site, mm. and for people who visit it the first time, they usually think it's satire, and it's not. <laughs> There's, it's really horrible. Um, they're currently offering uh, these $500 weekend seminars that you can go to where you learn how to heal from your internalized toxic whiteness. Um, and that's a real thing that you can pay money to do. But anyway, on everydayfeminism.com, they had some stuff about how uh, they have a problem with it being heteronormative. They say it, per it perpetuates the idea that certain kinds of relationships are more normal and more natural than and desirable than others. Specifically, it means that Valentine's Day celebrations focus on heterosexual, monogamous ro romantic relationships. Um, hmm. See, so they don't anything that's not traditional, as you and I have talked about before. They they kind of despise it, or anything that is traditional, anything that's traditional. So, of course, they don't approve of monogamy. Um, yeah, can, can we pause on this for a minute? Because yeah. I have a theory. Um, I'm gonna re I'm gonna do the most romantic thing possible and relate love to economics. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's this economic fallacy that happens uh, on the left uh, quite a lot, and it's this zero sum mentality. It's this idea that like um, if I make a billion dollars, that's a billion dollars that you didn't get, right? So um, I think uh, I think I've quoted this before, but there's a uh, I'll bastardize this quote from PJ O'Rourke, something about, uh, you know, the the economy is a pizza, and if I have too many slices, you're left with nothing but a Domino's box to feed your family. That's the fallacy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, inherently money, I, I get, you know, let, put the fiat currency crap and, and government-controlled currency aside for just a moment. At its essence, theoretically, money is, is a representation of um, productive, Activity. It's uh, you. You did something that someone else was willing to exchange their productive activity for. Either you made a movie, or you baked a biscuit, or whatever you did. Um, someone found value out of it, and they voluntarily exchanged and uh, their labor with yours. And um, money is not zero sum. Uh, so you can actually produce. And so Bill Gates getting a billion dollars doesn't take a billion dollars any away from anyone else. In fact, it helps us because. Uh, that billion dollars represents um, voluntary payments to him for providing value to our lives, right? We maybe a better example is the iPhone, right? But you know, you the iPhone's worth more than eight hundred dollars to you, so you hand over eight hundred dollars uh, to Apple, and it's worth less than eight hundred dollars to Apple, so they take the eight hundred dollars instead of the iPhone. It's a voluntary win-win exchange, and value is being created through the production and sale of an iPhone. Um, it's not a zero sum game and that's not, it's not, that's not how the economy works. That's not how production works. It's just not how, that's not how things work. It's not zero sum. Um, 
I think that that they this zero sum mentality doesn't just apply on the left to economics. I think it applies to attention, like emotional currency, attention, appreciation, love. It applies to all of this stuff. And so, um, and what what got me thinking about this was, you know, Tamara mentioned that schools are slowly. She says Valentine's Day is being turned into We Love Our Friends Day in schools. Um, schools, you know, I read some articles about schools not liking Valentine's Day, and the reason is they didn't like this idea that there's inherently discrimination in, in giving Valentine's Day. I don't mean discrimination in the, you know, racist or, you know, negative, the negative meaning of the word, but you I mean, mean discrimination, like picking I discriminate, some I'm discriminating, yeah. right? Like, oh, right. I, I like you, but not you. Like there's some, um, I, I'm conferring my affection on one person rather than another. And, and, you know, and they, and the schools worry that, you know, some of the ones who don't get the affection, their feelings are hurt and that kind of thing. Um, but I think the left and, and so let's just tie this back to kind of the heteronormative complaints, the complaints of heteronormativity. Um, just actually, does everyone know what the word heteronormative means? <laughs> means a focus on heteros like a heteros be making heterosexuality normal right the, or the 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 assumption that heterosexuality is normal so the function the 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 focus on of, of heteronormativity um means you're not focusing on and anything that's not heterosexual or anyone who's not heteronormative and and there are other ways to be sexually and other ways to have relationships and other ways to love and blah 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 and they seem to be acting like if the world celebrates Valentine's Day and two people who are in a loving, committed relationship celebrate Valentine's Day, or there's this public recognition that a committed heterosexual relationship and a romantic relationship is worth celebrating, that that somehow, that, that kind of emotional currency that's granted to those couples somehow detracts from appreciation or emotional currency for you. And so they, they literally use words like, well, um, it's it erases my existence right when yes. you do this thing to celebrate heterosexual relationship it erases the gay relationship or the whatever relationship um and it's this fallacy it's this idea that like just because we're celebrating one thing that a lot of people maybe relate to that doesn't mean that it's harming what's not being celebrated um on that day i right. guess that was a long way of saying it but uh, no, they do that. They use that erasure language with other things too. But but I have different opinion about heteronormativity now than I did when I was an SJW. Because tell me, well, heteronormativity is the idea that heterosexuality is the norm, and and I used to agree that that was quote problematic because there are other sexualities, but now I realize it is the norm, like. Like I'm not saying that everything should exclude. Uh, clearly, we shouldn't ex exclude gay couples. But uh, if you look at percentage-wise, on average, there's a reason why most of the couples that you see reflected in media. Because I, I was part of classes that would critique the media and say, oh, TV shows are so heteronormative. And they rightly applauded when we started seeing more gay characters. But now I feel like they're tilting it to such a degree that they want to see um, more representations than are actually statistically 
accurate, not just for gay couples, but for people of color as well. Like it's it's reached this point. It's like, um, it's not just, we don't want to see an accurate representation. We want to see 50, 50. I'm like, but that's not, that's not the norm. So right. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I'm kind of like, yeah, there's a reason why most of what you see reflected in mainstream media is heterosexual couples, because that is, that is the norm. <laughs> so, yeah. And there's this, um, there's this weird reaction to the word abnormal, which um, I think is an unhealthy reaction. The word abnormal just means not normal. And normal right. doesn't mean good. Normal right. does, it might be normal might be bad. Maybe people normally overconsume and have excess credit card debt. That's exactly. normal. Being you abnormal know, is good. What if, they do, Carter, is they they uh, they ascribe superiority to these things. So if you say abnormal or um, not average, they hear inferior, and or any right. type of difference, they hear inferior and superior. That's not true something can be not the norm and not be inferior um, and it vice versa. Yeah, it could be. And like you pointed out, you could something. Stephen Hawking's had a, an abnormal IQ. Yeah. Abnormally high. <laughs> right, that's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so they've got, they've got this view that abnormal is bad. And then or that that when we say abnormal, we mean bad, and that's not what we mean. So again, to your point, Carrie, yes, society is heteronormative, and that's correct. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the way. Sexuality is normal. I that's kind of the way I view it now, and I didn't view because what they teach you is that that's wrong to view that we should be viewing just like with the trans issue. Now you see, we are now forcing, you know, kindergartners to grapple with whether or not they're trans kindergartners shouldn't have to be grappling with that. It's like a 0.00% of the population has to grapple with that. But now we're treating that as the norm because they view uh, they view it as cisnormative. They have a new word, cisnormative. Cisnormative right. is when we assume that, so cis, just C-I-S, if you guys haven't seen this, cis is what they call you at, uh, in opposition to trans, meaning uh, they would call me a cis woman because I'm a biological woman and I also identify as a woman. Um, I refuse to be called to call myself cis. I'm like, I'm not going to define myself in relation to a very tiny statistical percentage of the population. That, but that's what they're forcing. It's a, it's about control. Yeah, and they're yeah. and that's they're why forcing, they started saying cisgender instead of just instead of just I'm not a woman. I'm a cis woman. But yeah, right. so just to finish my point on cis normativity, they're now it's like they're they view it as cis normative, not to force little children to figure out if they're cis or trans. And so you're forcing kids to grapple with a question that shouldn't be a question for almost like over 99% of the population. And so now you have kids that are, uh, haven't even taken biology classes yet that are being told that their, that their gender identity and their biological sex and their sexual orientation can all vary independently. And th th that's, I don't know, I think that's insane. So I mean, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, yeah. but cisnormativity, guys. No, no. Yeah, no, you're right. And Tamara points out that this is um, this is a this is intentional because they're trying to normalize things that are not normal. And not again, not normal doesn't be, mean bad. Neither Carrie or I have anything against people who aren't heterosexual. And I think probably there are a lot of people in 
who, um, you know, aren't aren't gay and aren't heterosexual and and maybe identify on some spectrum and are feel oppressed still. Like we're not arguing that there's not oppression, um, but uh, we are arguing that I think we are arguing that being heterosexual, at least mostly heterosexual, is quite normal. Like mostly heterosexual and monogamous is quite normal. And um, I'm also and so, arguing that there's nothing wrong with presenting the norm as the norm. Like they right. don't want you, they don't want the norm to be presented as the norm. They want a recreation of reality. Right. Right. So case in point, case in point, let's, uh, there's a bustle article. Let me pull this bustle article up. By the way, for those of you who are just joining, I know a couple people just joined. Uh, we're kind of taking it slow and relaxed today. Happy to get suggestions from, uh, from the the comments. Um, if you're the, just the joining, Carter's I'm, sick. I'm sick. <laughs> yeah, I'm sick and uh, not just mentally. Uh, and I figure, you guys, this is more like a lack, lackadaisical show. This is more like our Christmas special. We'll just have it be our Valentine's Day special. Oh, by the way, they feminists love to say they they're trying to they're trying to recenter Valentine's Day around um, loving and supporting women. And a lot of my feminist friends really loved uh, Leslie Nope's character on Parts and Rec when she declared Valentine's Day to be Galentine's Day, G-A-L, like a day when you celebrate women. And so a lot of my friends uh, steadfastly on Valentine's Day, they they choose to instead wish each other a happy Galentine's Day. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's, I just think it's interesting. Well, actually, actually, Carrie, I don't know if you are aware of this, but... Uh, Valentine's Day is now um, under attack by the social. You're behind on your social <laughs> culture. Um, I, I was looking Valentine's Day. They they don't like Valentine's Day because. Uh, Wait, is this is normative? No, it was. Um, you know what? I, hold on, I can actually find it. Let me find the article. Um, Valentine's. <laughs> Valentine's Day is sexist, they say, um, and patronizing. Uh, she doesn't need, so Rachel Hosey, I guess is how you say her name, she says she, she writes about why she doesn't need a separate holiday for her singlehood, and she certainly doesn't need pity that goes with Valentine's Day <laughs> because it stems from oppressive notions of traditional gender roles and expectations. So Look, Here's what's uh, funny about this, Carter. They're miserable, so they criticize Valentine's Day. So then they create a new holiday to try and be like, hey, let's have a reason not to be miserable. And then they get miserable and criticize Valentine's Day. <laughs> like, I know. I refuse to be happy. <laughs> I know. So here's an article from Bustle by Anna Goshua. Uh, and this, this gets back to this um, making things normal or not normal. She rails against, she, she writes, what Valentine's Day means when you're asexual and aromantic. Um, and again, so now, now her problem is basically that um, we are viewing being sexual and romantic as normal somehow. We're, we're normalizing being uh, sexual and romantic. So she says, so this is another really interesting one. She, um, she talks about how she liked Valentine's Day when she was younger and like to just kind of pat at school, they just passed out uh, 
Valentine's to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. But then when it became about selection, she writes, so, you know, when suddenly you like, when, when you have to maybe pick someone, right? And you don't just hand it out to everyone. She writes, suddenly the idea of wake, walking up to a friend, especially a male one, and handing them a Valentine's Day card seemed nothing short of mortifying. Years before I'd ever heard of the terms aromantic and asexual, let alone identified with them, I realized that Valentine's Day represented something that I seemingly couldn't understand or be a part of. Now, this to me is fascinating because she describes herself as aromantic and asexual. Um, but if she were aromantic and asexual, there would be nothing mortifying about handing a male a Valentine's on Valentine's Day. That's a great The reason point. that it causes her emotional stress is because she's a sexual and romantic creature. That's why she's stressed about it. Um, and it's really, it was fascinating to me to see that she didn't make that connection. It's literally the next sentence, right? She, she says like, oh, I had a lot of anxiety about the idea of walking up to a guy and handing him a Valentine's Day card. And basically the next sentence was like, that's because I didn't realize that I'm asexual and aromantic. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I don't like armchair psychologizing people I don't know, but I, it sounds like you're not. Aromantic, yeah. asexual, uh, because if you were handing Valentine's Day cards, it wouldn't to be an issue. Guys, you like wouldn't be a big deal. Um, so then she says, although Valentine's Day may seem like a trivial holiday, it's far from the only time that a social emphasis on romantic and sexual relationship contributes to a sense of alienation among aromantic and asexual people people who don't experience romantic or sexual attraction, respectively. So by the way, she just did define those terms in case you don't know. They're people who don't experience romantic or sexual attraction, but apparently freak out at the idea of handing someone a Valentine's. Um, so, so she's, again, this is back to what we we're talking about, Carrie. Her criticism is that it's normalizing, it's quote, quote, creating an emphasis. It's like your celebration of love uh, makes me feel alienated. <laughs> That's basically the argument, right? Um, well, it's it's being annoyed by other. It it reminds me of what we talked about with uh, SJWs who get triggered by people talking about exercising or going to the gym, and they're like, you know, I don't want to hear about your exercise because you're fat shaming me it's like no it's not about it's not about you they they view everything as being about them so if every this woman sounds like she's sort of everyone else's uh, romantic love that she sees around her is somehow a condemnation of her and it's not yeah and and they use the language right so um sex educator kenna cook tells bustle bustle again it's bustle um quote <laughs> Being aromantic or asexual tends to be portrayed as an extreme option, like being a nun or a spinster. Aromantic and asexual folks often have their valid identities completely erased. Um, I don't know. It's uh, It is this weird... That's why I kind of relate this back to the zero-sum idea of economics. It's like if, if you tell Carrie that you like her... Or just haven't said that you like them, right? Like it's a, it's a world where you can't actually have any preference for anything. No. No. Expressing preference hurts everyone who doesn't get the preference expressed for them. Although that's Part also uh, problematic, which we can talk about in a minute. <laughs> You're freezing up, just so you know. I think uh, oh. I can still hear you. 
but the video has you, you totally frozen. Well, anybody... as long as you can hear me. Okay, good. Uh, good. I can, I can I see you again. You don't have to look at my my swollen <laughs> face. So uh, <laughs> you're sick. Hearing me is fine. Okay. But so, but they um, yeah. So it's this idea that uh, your your identity is erased simply because someone prefers someone else. Mm -hmm. Um. But then the flip side of that is it's also considered, this is, we talked about this last week, um, unwanted uh, uh, unwanted solicitation is also bad, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and is viewed as harassment. So let's just play a scenario out here. Let's say, just for the sake of argument, that there's someone out there in our community who has a crush on Carrie. I'm going to use you as an example because you're single, Carrie. Um, they, uh, by expressing any interest in Carrie, um, first of all, they're sexually harassing her if it's unwanted, which they won't know until she responds. So they're risking sexually harassing and being an oppressor. And they've now uh, erased and um, oppressed everyone who's not Carrie, who they didn't express interest to. I think that about sums up the social justice uh, outlook on expressing affection. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, can I can I uh, ask you if we can talk about something? No, you Let, can just talk about it. Can, okay, let's talk about this, it. This is not so, this is not the patriarchal oppression podcast, right? See how see Carrie? Yeah, perfect. We're equals. So I was having a discussion with some women last night who are Christian, who were asking me about. Uh, to go back to the Everyday Feminism website and how terrible they are, they have this conference about unlearning your toxic whiteness or what have you. Um, and they have a lot of crazy conferences. Like it's if you look through all the seminars they're they're uh, advertising, it's just this is it's SJW boot camp, um, or as uh, what, what was I calling it? So my, my friend said it's a gulag, and I said, uh, yeah, it's an emotional labor camp. <laughs> but they. Uh, <laughs> love the idea because um, you go there to basically be shamed about all of your privileges but so they have this one class about like it sounds kids. kind of like kinky by the way it sounds like something that if they just made it sexual would be a fetish um and maybe yeah. it is a fetish oh well there are some on not to get too far afield but there's a website there's a secret facebook group called white guilt trading post where white people are based it's like a fetish they pay money to people of color who demand money and then some of like there was one woman in there a black woman in there who calls the white guys piggy like give me money piggy that seems very sexualized and like fetishized to me it's very creepy like a money kind of domination yeah. scenario uh, but so to go back to these classes they have one about uh ethical non-monogamy like open relationships and so some of the women i was talking to last night were like asking me sort of is this common and I think it, at least in anecdotally, it's become more common. I know people who practice this or who who claim to. I, I used to have work. I used to work with someone who was in an open relationship, but it wasn't really open because she was still lying about and like hiding relationships, which is weird. It's like if you're in an open one, why hide it? But um, you know more about this, like the open relationship stuff and the ethical non-monogamy. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. 
Ah, about love here specifically let me give you let me give you a, a starting point the idea that uh there's a book called the ethical slut right that a lot of people i've read a lot of my friends have read and it, it was a very popular book and one idea that they have the the uh, one of the ideas behind non-monogamy is that there's an abundance of love and you can never have too much love and you can express love with yeah. multiple people um so yeah, uh, I've, I've talked about this a little bit on the show, but this might be TMI for some people, but uh, Carrie asked, so blame her. Um, yeah, so actually The Ethical Slut is a horrible book. It's um, just stupid. It's just sophomoric and dumb. And I say that as someone who spent years as a, like in a polyamorous relationship. Dossie Eaton, who was the author of that book, was my therapist so for a little <laughs> while. So like... It is a piece of shit. Oh, so I'm trying not to swear so much. By the way, stop me from swearing. We're trying to make these a little bit more kid-friendly, Carrie. So go ahead and smack okay. me upside the head virtually. Um, but uh, Dossie Eaton, uh, sorry, the the book itself, um, it was just it was sophomoric and dumb. It was like I literally it stuff like I don't remember if this is in the book or if she's something that she told me, but she was. It's like, oh, do you feel jealousy? why don't you put your pajamas in the dryer while your spouse is out with someone else and then put them on because they'll be warm and fuzzy and it will make you feel better. It's like, what kind of, like, it's, did you even graduate junior high school? Where, like, what kind of advice? How stupid. The, the advice is just, it's a, it's a horrible book. Even if you want to practice non-monogamy, it's a stupid, stupid book. And the only reason that people like it is the name sounds interesting and risque, and a lot of people don't have any other resources to turn to, so they open that book. So um, my views on, on polyamory. Uh, I, I also went through a time in my life where I followed that logic, and I said, well, love is boundless. You can have lots of love. Just because you love one person doesn't mean you don't love another person, and you can, you can love more than one person in that. Um, that kind of sounds like it might make sense, even for Christians where there's this, like, well, God's got, obviously God has endless love, right? Um, granted, I'm an atheist, but um, we'll, mm -hmm. I'll use the Christian language, right? God's got endless love for all of his children. And and um, and so clearly this concept is, 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 uh, is valid. And, and a lot of the arguments uh, for it were similar to the arguments that I just made actually about the zero sum game. Remember, I, I criticized and said, like, look, the economy is not a zero sum game, blah, blah, blah. So oddly enough, a lot of these people who think that the economy is a zero sum game, on the flip side, say, well, love's not a zero sum game. You don't get it just because you love someone doesn't mean you're not loving someone else. Um, and I I think so just uh, just to kind of set the stage here, I am no longer polyamorous. I don't think it works uh, for me, uh, at least. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some real problems with it that people don't talk about. And, and I think it really comes down to uh, what you mean by the definition of the word love. Mm -hmm. And if you mean a adolescent hormone-induced definition of love, then that logic works perfectly well. And you like, can love as many people as you want. Like an emotion or limerence, right? Feels like a thing, like limerence. So people who don't know the word limerence, limerence is that, you know, when you first get into a relationship, it's very exciting and it lasts, you know, between six and 18 months typically, and then kind of dies down into you. And then you, 
kind of get into your quote ruts and you're, you're in your more mature phase of your relationship. That beginning phase is called limerence. Um, and it's basically impossible to get back with a particular person because it's about newness. Part of, part of this feeling is about newness and, and, um, and discovery. And so once you, once you're in a relationship with someone after a while, um, it's, it's hard to, to rekindle that newness because you know the person very well, which is good. You, you want a secure known entity to settle down and have children with or whatever. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, if you have this sophomoric or kind of adolescent view of love as this feel, love is the thing that makes me feel bubbly, right? Then, then you can have that attitude. But the truth is in, in the real world, um, it may be true that your, your hormones are quote unlimited and your feelings are quote unlimited, but unlike God, and again, I'm going to use God as a metaphor here. Unlike God, your time is not unlimited. Your resources are not unlimited. Your attention is not unlimited. And if you view love in a more mature way, and you view love as not just giddy feelings, but as a conscious commitment and deep respect for and support of another individual, then you very quickly come to the conclusion that because there's so many hours in a day, if you spend an hour supporting this one person, it is a zero-sum game. You're not spending that hour supporting this other person. You don't yeah. have unlimited hours and unlimited time. You also don't have unlimited emotional energy. So um, I think the the decision to be polyamorous is a decision to limit the the depth of commitment from a I, I don't I don't mean it in like a when I say that people are like oh it's not limiting the depth of commitment I'm still going to commit and be with this person forever I I mean you're you're actually limiting the amount of um uh intimacy that you can have with that other person and maybe you can get very intimate but you're by, always holding a part of yourself back though. I mean, there's always a part of even you. Even if you're not holding yeah. a part of yourself back consciously, you are by, if there's someone else that you're also doing that with, mm -hmm. that you're also being emotionally supportive of, or you're also being there for and spending time with, that is by definition taking away from time and attention and energy you're spending with the other person. And so maybe you get to a certain level of depth before you're 98 and keel over but you maybe would have gotten to twice that level of depth if you hadn't spread it around. Um, well, I, I and, actually, I do, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I do think that it's, I do think there's a part of yourself being held back because you're, um, you're necessarily creating romantic and in intimacy with another person that your primary partner is not a part of. And we may not agree on that, but I think, I think that that is a, uh, I'm of the opinion that that's some that's a part of you that they're not getting to experience. And I, one one other quick thing you said that makes me think of is, love is not, like we're saying, love is not just a feeling. It's an action, like it's behaviors. And so, yes. like you said, we have you have limited time. You have limited um, actions and behaviors. And and if you're if you're acting and behaving away from that one person, you're acting behaving with another person you're loving this other person in that time. Um, it, it is something that you're parsing up. It is a, a pie that you're cutting into pieces and you're divvying up. And so um, 
I think there was a, it makes me think of um, a friend invited me to hear this, uh, this guy speak. I'm, I'm blanking on his name. He's a, he's a Christian, he's a theologian, but he did a whole lecture about St. Augustine and he was framing it around the idea of like freedom from versus freedom to, and how our culture and our society teaches us that freedom is freedom from, like always running from things, like hitting the open road, like, you know, getting outside of boundaries, no boundaries, no limitations. Um, and the problem with that, and it, you can see this in St. Augustine's life, is he was such a hedonist, you know, and he pursued everything and drink and sex and, you know, you continually push the boundaries. But uh, this guy would argue, and I would argue that when you do that, you're, you're always escalating because it's never fulfilling. Your freedom from is not enough because you have to just keep going and going and going. And what's actually kind of revolutionary to discover is that freedom too, like if you actually have structure and boundaries, that then you have a lot of freedom within that structure and boundaries, that it's a different kind of freedom that you don't have when there are no boundaries. So think of it like this, like an artist, they have boundaries. They learned, they learned technique. They spend a lot of time learning the structure and the boundaries. And then once they get that down, they have the freedom to be incredible, to create incredibly beautiful works because they've spent that time within the framework, if that makes sense. And so, I, I think the same thing yeah, I mean, about it, love. The, it's like the thing with like writing, for example, Carrie, right? If you, if right. you give someone, it's harder to start with a blank page and no direction than it is. If I say, write about a Martian named Bob, that's from Mars and really likes green cheese. Like, okay, that's like, I've constrained you quite a lot, but you, you're more likely to come up with some interesting yes. ideas there than, than, you know, right. Like, look, piece of paper. Go. exactly. Like look at art. If you don't, if you don't have that structure and you don't have, that's what postmodern art is. It's a bunch of crap because you've got people right. who are just, you know, throwing dung onto a sheet and saying that that's art because they're not working within any framework. And uh, yeah. I think I've, I've come to believe this, at least at this point in my life, the same thing about relationships is that if you have that boundary, um, that there's a lot more freedom too within that to explore and to get more, deep and intimate and all these things that you wouldn't experience when you're spreading yourself so thin and you're trying to juggle all these different things. I, yeah, I, mean, I, I want to be careful about what, what I'm saying though, because um, I'm not actually telling people they shouldn't be in polyamorous relationships. If oh, they me want either. To be. I, I think that it's just, um, I recently culture has become our culture has become um, excited about stuff like swinging and polyamory and all this other stuff without really, I think, taking a serious look at the consequences and the downsides. And you just have to go in knowing what they are. And I, can we just clarify some terms? Because I think some people, um, I, I was in this community for a while, so uh, I take for granted that people understand terms, but I think it's important because someone just mentioned um, Laura just mentioned she had a client that was a swinger once and, and you mentioned something about, um, your partner not being there or whatever. Um, there are different styles of quote, open relationships, right? There's polyamory where you, that's what I talked about at the beginning where, where it's your quote spreading love or whatever you're loving different people. And, and I talked about why I think, uh, you know, that's hard to do given the constraints of reality. I guess maybe in a world where, I guess if like if you were a trust fund baby and had uh, 
nothing else to do with your entire time and you found two people each of whom had a career that they were very dedicated to and one worked days and the other worked nights like i don't know maybe you could work it out and you no time that you spent with one person would detract from time you spent another person i, I don't know um I, i'm not i'm not saying it's not possible but but um just i'm saying you need to understand what the what the costs are and how and and what you know what it does take to do it. So that's like polyamory. But then there's things like open relationships where, um, you know, open relationships is often a more broad term of polyamory is maybe a type of open relationship, but you can have relationships where uh, like, you have sexual rules. flings are allowed, but yeah, but like, and, and often when those relationships work, they have very well-defined rules and those rules are followed. And um, in fact, the only way I've seen them work is if there are well-defined rules and the rules are religiously followed and there's um, never deceit. And so there's a difference between having an affair and being in a an open relationship and having sex with someone, right? Being in an open relationship and having sex does not involve deceit, right? If you're following your rules, presumably. Um, and that actually is quite different than an affair. Um, so I, you know, be careful not to put those together in the swinging community. Often, like, like I said, Laura said to her client, she had a client who was a swinger swingers, um, swingers, often their partner is present for the sexual activity. Um, and they view it as like some bonding thing as a couple that's like, I'm not here to tell anyone what to do or not to do on any of those things. But, you know, just to circle this back to love, and, which is, you know, we're talking about Valentine's Day and love. We're not talking, this isn't, uh, you know, orgy day. This is Valentine's Day. So we're talking about love, not sex. And, um, you know, to circle it back, I think you need to have a pretty immature view of love to think that love is just these feelings, just these bubbly feelings, just this limerence, and therefore... Um, there's zero consequences to um, polyamory in terms of how deeply and and intimately you can love. And I don't think the left is uh, very keen on making it clear what those trade-offs are because, and we can get into this, I think one of their goals is to destroy the family and destroy um, monogamous and even semi-monogamous <laughs> heterosexual uh, relationships. Right. Um, well, I, so. I, uh, um, you know, whatever, I'm not condemning these things. It, I'm just expressing my personal opinion. People can do what they want. This is just what I've learned at where I'm at in my life right now. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but, but I do think there is a, in the, in the bubble that I was in, in the SJW echo chamber I was in, uh, there is kind of a, a denigration of, they kind of smirk at heterosexual monogamy. Um, there are a lot of opinion pieces and things that have come out in the past few years about, you know, uh, my husband and my boyfriend, you know, like articles where people are kind of flaunting right. that they're in open relationships. And, um, mm -hmm. and uh, there's also, again, not to say they're not the same, but I know a lot of, in my experience, I know people who were in open relationships who then were having affairs so it's like they weren't following the rules. Um, they were hiding things. And so, um, and there's also this uh, justification. Oh no.
you cut out, I think. I know. Sorry, I have to get the doggy. That's fine. You go get the dog. Um, I guess... I guess... I don't know. I, I don't know if I should wait for you to get back, Carrie, before I make this point, but... Um, oh, wait, you're back. Okay, never mind. I'll just let Carrie continue. No, I'm sorry. My dog's just... He's determined to be a part of this podcast today. It, he heard that we That's were fine. doing a lackadaisical holiday special and he's like, I want to be in that. So <laughs> yeah, that's it's cool. Tiger. That's cool. <laughs> um, I guess my point was just that there's, uh, there, there seem to be no boundaries in a lot of my social circles. Like it seems to be this attitude of, and maybe this was just in the entertainment industry. I don't know. I don't know, but it, that this kind of, uh, you do you and you take care of you like this kind of attitude. And, um, anything that's traditional kind of being frowned on. And so, yeah. Yeah. So the thing that I think is not talked about is um, one of the main reasons. So let's say if you're not going to have children at all, um, I think that it's, um, there are reasons to be in a long-term committed relationship, of course, but the reasons are much less important. And I think um, I'll say this as someone who did get divorced and, um, and, and really, uh, I think I got divorced mistakenly in the sense that, you know, not that I, I don't uh, you know, love my wife now and, and have a happy life, but um, I think at the time, um, the people around me discounted the effect it would have on my child. Um, and I did as well. I mean, not, you know, I'm, I'm to blame, but, you know, I asked for advice and I, I talked about it. One thing that people dismiss is the impact children on some of these um, other relationship norms, we'll call them, or, or styles, not norms. Um, and, uh, you know, children do better in a two-parent family, like home, with, with both biological parents present. And that's really important to not ignore. And I think a lot of these people... Um, I, I think, first of that's, all, they're anti-kids. That's a stat, by the way. If people don't know that, that's an actual stat. Kids do, on average. That doesn't mean you have oh, to yeah. have, you Absolutely. know, if you understand averages. But on average, kids do better in homes with both genetic, both parents, there, both biological parents there. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so I think, you know, it's one of the reasons that we have this this institution of of marriage or we'll, we don't even have to be state related it can just be this this idea that we pair bond long term is to raise children human children take an awful lot of time to raise right they're not like you know when a deer has a baby in like two or three days the, the baby's up and running around and you know can go forage for itself right um humans are not like that we, we have a lot we we there's a lot of resources that are invested in our children. And as a result, um, the stability of having um, both parents present is, is vital to raising a child. And so um, I think a lot of this that if you, if you read, you know, I read a couple articles on bustle and a few other places uh, about, you know, because it was Valentine's day, they, they felt like it was time to tell us all the other, kinds of relationships we could have and how they were all valid and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's fine. But one thing that's notably absent from most of the discussion is the effect on children. The assumption is that you don't have children. Um, and these are all the things that you can do to fulfill yourself. 
Um, but if you if you have children, uh, this stuff this stuff matters, and the stability of relationship matters. And you know, one person that I know, conservatives tend to, or at least the conservatives that I've seen, tend to dislike this woman. But I think she's quite interesting and, and love her stuff. Um, there's a there's a uh, a therapist named uh, Esther Perel who writes a book. She, she wrote a wrote a few different books, but one of them is called Mating in Captivity, and she talks about um, there is an, this inherent conflict between um, wanting. So, if you look at your your hierarchy of needs, people want both kind of stability um, and security on the one hand, but they also want kind of variety and newness um, and like risk on the other hand, and learning how to balance that in a relationship is quite difficult because part of that limerence that we talked about is that kind of newness and variety. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't, you know, we do ask our spouses and, and this is not an easy task and I don't, I'm not saying it's easy, but we do ask our spouses to be on the one hand, I want you to be completely predictable in my solid rock. And I know everything is going to be fine with you. And I feel very stable and, and assured and there's no surprises. That's what I want. Also, I want it to be new and surprise me and be unpredictable and risky, like, because that's exciting. Like, it's very, you can't be both of those things, and it's very difficult. So, um, you know, I think the truth of the matter is humans aren't only semi-monogamous. There's a huge rate of infidelity, um, and I, I think um, you could chalk that up to... Uh, you know, whatever you want, but it's not a new phenomenon. You could say, well, this is recent or whatever, but infidelity is not a new phenomenon. And so I think the human sexuality is it's quite in the Bible. And yeah. And, um, and so I think it's, it's a topic that's worth exploring, probably not uh, on this podcast today, but it is, you know, is this a topic that's worth exploring because it's not straightforward that like, Oh, just be in a monogamous relationship for the rest of your life. And, you know, all you have to do is uh, buy some sex toys and you'll be happy. Right. Uh, you know, you know, dress up once in a while in the bedroom and, and, you know, you'll find your love life fulfilled. Like that's not necessarily true. There are psychological drives and emotional drives that make it difficult and it's worth working through and figuring out. But I would, I would say um, the biggest problem, if you're going to be in a relationship the worst thing you can do is uh, is be deceitful. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know why we got off on that topic. I guess because you asked about polyamory, but just don't be deceitful. Whatever you do, don't be deceitful and be honest with your partner and have honest conversations about what's going on. Or uh, what's the Jordan Peterson quote? He says, uh, always tell the truth or at least don't lie. It, if you can help it, right. like always tell the truth or at least don't lie. Um, I was going to say the reason why well, from a Christian point of view, it's because it's sin. It's like we are we are fallen and we live in a fallen world. That's just one perspective. I'm not saying everyone has to believe that, but that it's uh, there's the difference. With, you know, we are of the flesh. It's that whole idea of uh, it's like a constant struggle. Is that you're struggling against uh, your? You know, I went to this sermon once at a friend's church. This was more of like a fire and brimstone church. Uh, so I only went to one service there. But uh, the preacher gave part of what he said I thought was really interesting. He was talking about it protecting a marriage and being um, a monogamous relationship and being aware of your weaknesses of the flesh so that you don't put yourself in situations where setting yourself so up to fail. you going to mic us now? 
That actually, it made me think of Mike Pence. Yeah. Uh, because he was saying, you know, I don't go to, because I, I don't ever want to put myself in a situation, but he's like, yeah, I don't go to dinner with single or with women who are not my wife without other people being there. Like I don't go alone. Like he had certain rules for himself. And I thought, wow, that's a really proactive way, not just about monogamy or just in general, if you know, don't set yourself up for failure, whether you're talking about protecting your marriage or you're talking about um, any type of not having Twinkies in the cupboard at home because you've got a susceptibility. Exactly. Not having Twinkies in the cupboard at home because that's your problem, right? Like whatever your problem right. is, don't put yourself in situations where you're going to be tempted because if you know what your temptations are and what you're capable of and to know that you have to be aware of how much evil you're capable of. You can't pretend like you're a good person. All these people pretend like they're good people. And then it's like you, you're, you're setting up a moral blind spot for what you're actually capable of because you refuse to face that of what you could, you know. Um, anyway, we're going a little far afield. That's okay. This is our fun yeah, holiday special. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can talk about whatever. I, I guess, um, you know, uh, I, I just, with respect to being honest, um, and this is just, this isn't it's just my personal experience. So um, with respect to being honest, uh, I think in a relationship, it means being honest about um, stuff that's really uncomfortable to be honest about and, and about your emotions. So to give an example, um, and I know not everyone would agree with this, but uh, if I find someone else attractive, I'm attracted to some woman I meet at work or out on the street or whatever. Um, I tell my wife about it. It diffuses um, it. It. I was just going to say that it it diffuses the tension because then she can know we can have a conversation about why, and it's not a failure on my part. It's a natural thing to be attracted to people. So you can have that discussion and it can become a moment where you bond with your spouse uh, more closely rather than if you pretend it's not true um, and cover it up, then it becomes, uh, now you've kind of got this dirty little secret and that secret takes on erotic power because secrets are kind of exciting. Um, and, um, you you've denied your marriage the opportunity to learn from that attraction so there is a difference this is one of the differences between um it's actually one of the things i i i like about judaism over christianity not to get into a religious discussion but um in in judaism it's my understanding i'm i'm actually grew up culturally jewish but i'm not practicing jewish um in, in Judaism, you've committed a sin when you, by the act of something, you've, you've committed a sin by doing something. And in a lot of Christian teachings, you've committed the sin by thinking about it. Um, so, you know, thou shall not lust after thy neighbor's wife. So um, now get granted, that's an Old Testament. Uh, so I'm, I'm talking not about what's actually written, but what seems to be the practice in the communities, right? Um, I think that uh, giving yourself an order to not feel a certain way is setting yourself up for failure. It's okay to lust after your neighbor's wife. It's not okay to act on the lust after your neighbor's wife. So there's a there's a 
whenever you pretend that you can control your emotions, you're being irrational. Like you can't, you can't say, don't feel this way. Don't have these thoughts. Don't get murderously angry. You can say don't murder, but you can't say don't feel this way. And when you say don't, don't feel this way, you will inevitably break that rule. And then you've set yourself up for failure because you've, you've kind of told your subconscious, well, I know I have these rules, but I've already broken them. So I'm a rule breaker. So I'm, I'm like, what's the difference, right? I'm just going to break another rule. I'm already a rule breaker. So, uh, well, I think actually, it's can I detrimental for a to set yourself up for that. And yeah, tell me if I may be wrong on, on the, no, I'm I just, just reflecting my perspective on Christianity, but no, but I think you're, I think you're, um, you're missing something about the Christian perspective that you, you actually agree with it, which is you said, you tell your wife when you have a thought like that, and that's what diffuses it. See, like there is a verse in the New Testament. Yeah, uh, but I'm not sure. But that's not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is don't feel it. Right? You're wrong for feeling it. Generally. I don't know. I don't and know. Maybe modern, or at no. least Christianity that I grew up with. Okay, let, no, here's my take on it. Now, there's a verse in Matthew, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So that's in the New Testament as well. But the point is, at least when I've heard preachers talk about this recently, and it's only recently that I've been listening to stuff like, again, my, my perspective on Christianity is new. Um, but uh, it's, it's about what you said. It's about letting a thought permeate and keep it as a secret to yourself. And you're, you're, you're going to have thoughts that are, you're going to have thoughts like I hate that person or I, I, I lust after that person. You're going to have immoral thoughts, but there's a difference between having a thought and then like growing a thought because a thought that you come back to over and over becomes an act and an act that you that you do more than once becomes a habit and a habit becomes an addiction you have all those things right but like but it starts with sure. a thought that's why i think christians focus on that's why i think the bible focuses on the thought because without the thought you don't have the act you're going to have the thought right. it's just like you you take actions to not have it in secret over and over and over again by sharing it with your partner which is, yeah, I guess, makes, I guess, yeah. look, I, I don't want to get into a theological debate yeah. about what's the, the right way to, <laughs> I, I'm just, no. you know, growing up the, 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 my, the Christianity I grew up with was mm -hmm. um, definitely um, there was self-condemnation for having impure thoughts. And um, I, I reject that as a practical method for dealing with the world because you will have impure thoughts and if you condemn yourself for having impure thoughts, then you've, you've, you, people tend to think in very black and white terms, I'm good or I'm bad. Like you, you tend to, like you set up, if you set up a set of rules that you know you're going to break, then you will start to view yourself as a rule breaker. And it becomes like, but if you, if those sets of rules are, I'm allowed to have these thoughts, but when I have them, these are the things that I need to do. I need to make sure that I diffuse them. I need to make sure I don't act on them. Blah, blah, blah. Then you can have those thoughts follow all the rules and you haven't broken any rules and you're still, you're still setting yourself up to have a, a self view as someone who's moral. But if you set the rule up where like only if I do that, it's an, if I have that thought, it's immoral. I'm an immoral person for having that thought. Um, I think, and again, this is not a statement about Christianity or any other religion. I think you're setting yourself up for failure because you will have thoughts about actions whether it's adultery or murder but or Carter, whatever stealing, but Carter, you will have thoughts. That Christians you don't. Christians don't say you won't though. 
they say you're going to have those thoughts because you're a sinner. Like you're going to have yeah. the point. The point is without well, God's. Okay, but I'm, I'm arguing. Saying, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> no, right. Here's what I'm saying. Because right. because we finally get passionate about something. Because without God's moral law to say that is immoral, this is where we're probably disagreeing. That that there would be no reason for you not to have them again and again and keep them secret, right? So you're going to have them, but knowing that you shouldn't dwell in them, like that's the whole point. It's like you shouldn't let it become. An yeah, I think, I've actually I just think we're saying the same practical thing. Practical reason why you shouldn't, <laughs> right? Like, but <laughs> I, I, you shouldn't. You don't need God's law. There's a practical reason why you should. <laughs> I just described my practical reason. It ruins your marriage. Um, of but anyway, course it does. Yeah. We well, don't have to have a theological debate. No, we don't. But but I will say most of what, of course, it's a practical reason. See, a lot of times people fuck up. Sorry, again, with the language, people mess up their lives. And then and then this is what I liked about the Bible is when I started reading it again, I'm like, oh, like it told you some of these things that maybe you should and shouldn't do. <laughs> like You didn't have yeah. to figure this all out the hard way. Of course, there's practical reasons why this is a moral law. So I think we're in agreement right. here. I think we're just passionately disagreeing about being in agreement. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I'm not sure we are. I think we I think we're still in disagreement about about uh, how we view thoughts, whether the thoughts themselves are immoral. And uh, okay. I would argue the thoughts aren't the thoughts don't make you a bad person. Um, I don't think, I think so either. Just, yeah, I would agree. Oh, oh, okay. Then we're they in. Don't make, they don't make um, you a bad person. Can we talk about something else that's just yeah. random? Can I just can we lighten it up for a second? Yeah. Because I don't, I mean, uh, yeah. Can we talk about Diet Coke and napkins? Please tell me about it. <laughs> I just think this is funny and it's kind of related to Valentine's Day because it's it's related to um, this idea that expressing interest in someone is um, hurtful <laughs> and oppressive. Um, and I get, you know, catcalling is, is rude and, and stuff. I'm not saying that... Uh, you know, I'm not saying that uh, you, you can harass people, but we seem to not have this distinction between harassing someone and, and hitting on them in an innocent manner in society now. And everything's become like, you're a victim if you get, if I say, hey, you're hot, want to go on a date? Like suddenly I'm creepy um, and oh my God, you're oppressed. So uh, a third of millennials and, and say that get, that's sexual harassment. Right. Wait, what was that number again? How many millennials? A third. Of millennials, a third of millennials think it's sexual harassment, right? Um, which is just blows my mind. Uh, but so Delta Airlines, the other, I think this was last week, they got in trouble because so you know how you get, um, you know, you get the little napkins with your peanuts or whatever, Carrie, and they, they're often sponsored by some company. Um, so Delta's napkins are sponsored by Diet Coke, all right, and uh, so they're branded Diet Coke, and so Diet Coke, I guess launched this campaign, which was all about uh, using the napkins to tell your plane crush, quote, your plane crush, your phone number. And basically, like, so there's a spot to, like, write your phone number, and it's it says stuff like, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it says stuff like, you know, uh, you know, who knows? It could happen. Like, give them your phone number. You give your phone number to your plane crush. You never know. It could happen. Um, and uh, I think it's kind of silly. Um, but, uh, yes, people were very upset about the idea that Diet Coke was encouraging you to give your phone number to people and basically hit on them, uh, on the flight and, uh, and hit on your plane crush. Um, 
I view it as something that was just so they they yanked the napkins by the way, and there was out outrage. Um, I viewed it as something that was kind of uh, innocuous, but um, I mean, I guess if someone was like persistently then crushing on you and you're sitting next to them, it would be a little bit weird. But uh, I don't know, Carrie. I'm not a I'm not a woman who's likely to get a no. a note on a plane from my plane crush. So, am I wrong? Is this a, a horribly offensive thing to be? be doing is diet coke when did um, women toxic masculine company no when did women forget how to decline in advance <laughs> like it's as if it's as if women don't have the ability to say oh thanks that's kind and then like throw the napkin away because they're not yeah. actually i am hot but i'm not it. interested in you so go away or <laughs> yeah. whatever like don't it's almost there's this there's also this thing in feminist communities because and, and this is probably part of what's behind this idea that um, a third of millennials believe that complimenting someone on their physical appearance is sexual harassment um, is, is that there's been this attitude in feminist circles of if someone compliments you, you take it in a negative way and you know, you, you should get angry about that or something uh, that all of it is a type of cat predatory compliments are predatory. Right. And, and that that refuses to acknowledge nuance. Like I've certainly been in a case where I remember one time in New York, I was walking into a bodega and some guy said some something. Uh, I didn't even know he was talking to me. So I'm kind of oblivious most of the time. So I didn't say anything back and I walked in and then he, and then he called me a bitch or something because I didn't <laughs> respond. That's the type of guy, that's the type of compliment that I absolutely understand why feminists criticize that because it's a person who's paying you a compliment in order to get something from you. And they're at heart, they're really just are, don't like you. I don't It's a weird misogyny thing, but, um, but they conflate that with all compliments and that's just not true. And so I know like, like there's nothing wrong with a person saying, Hey, I'm into you. And you being like, that's very flattering, but I'm not like, I, maybe people are afraid of hurting. I mean, I know I am too. People are afraid of hurting people's feelings. So maybe it stems from that too. They feel like, why am I put in this position where I must hurt feelings? So they, so they call them misogynists <laughs> for giving out their phone number. Well, that's great true. solution. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just think people are too touchy these days. They're too touchy and they're too, it's almost as if they view women as not having uh, agency. Like Agency, not, yeah, yeah, not able to say no, thank you, or you know, not interested, or or yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think that's silly. Yeah, it's odd also to me because um, people like to feel desired, especially women. I don't know, maybe I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but you're going to get in trouble for saying that. Women, <laughs> women like generally, in my experience, women like feeling desired. Uh so. And they like being quote objects of desire. They like feeling desired. Uh, but if you express that desire and that woman happens to be a feminist, uh, you're a misogynist pig. So You know who's really hurt by this, Carter, is that one couple who was going to meet this way and get married. And now it's never going to happen. <laughs> that would have been their story. The Coca-Cola napkins. <laughs> <laughs> They were probably planning on we'll do a we'll do a follow up two years later to see who met uh, with with Coke napkins and right and they're now married and have kids yeah um, I don't know Carrie uh, maybe we should um, it is Valentine's Day I, I feel like we should we should loop back to Valentine's Day with a pretty easy question you can just answer for us which is um, what is romantic love go. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> That's not an easy question. <laughs> That's not an easy question at all. Um, I'd, I'd have to think about it for a while. I mean, it's, it's what we were talking about as like limerence. I mean, it has physical effects. You have physical like heart racing or short of breath, like that kind of stuff. Um, romantic, but that's just like the beginning romantic that's love. Lust. Yeah. That's, that's more, yeah. Romantic, but, but the word romantic, um, do you mean like long-term monogamous love or do you mean like the beginning or what? I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, I rem I mean, romantic love as opposed to, uh, filial love or, oh, um, okay. Love of pizza or like, I mean, romantic sexual love. Oh, what is what well, is romantic love? I think it's it's that special type of love that you have for a partner, for someone that you're going to share your life with. That is, uh, that is. I, I know I bring him up a lot, but one thing that Peterson said that I really liked was he said, uh, "Marriage it should be an agreement where two people agree to show the worst parts of themselves to each other and not run away screaming." Like marriage right. <laughs> should be, uh, or romantic love, that partnership should be the place where you feel secure to be completely honest about who you are with all of your shortcomings and failings with each other and to support each other and, and to be, to know the worst in each other and to still love each other because you see the best and to help each other be the best version of yourself. And you can't, yeah. you can't spend that type of intimacy with everyone, you know, and, uh, I do. I personally believe it works best with one person. It doesn't mean other people can't do what they want or try what they want. It's just, uh, 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 I mean, there are biological reasons as well. Why, why like you said about re child rearing and stuff, why we are driven to, uh, pair bond, if you will. <laughs> um, what is your answer? <laughs> what is what? romantic love? <laughs> It's not chocolates uh, and flowers. <laughs> uh, no, I think um, I mean fundamentally, and I didn't I didn't invent this, but uh, I I think I think romantic love is um, is a fundamentally I think it's a response to uh, values that you see in another person that you admire, um, and uh, it has to be mixed with sexual desire for it to be romantic love, but. Um, it's a response to values and uh, which is why I think um, shared values are very important for a long term relationship. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but um, you know, if you, I know a lot of people would, would argue that um, people with two different religions can, can be married and, and happy. And I'm sure there are people of two different religions that are married and happy, but uh, I would argue that neither one of them can be taking their religion seriously. And that be true. Um, mm -hmm. Because if if your fundamental view of the universe is uh, opposed by your significant other, um, I think it's a barrier to uh, to growing together and really knowing each other. Um, I think you can agree disagree on lots of things, but I think without those shared values, uh, I think it's it's difficult. But um, yeah, I, in a summary, that's there's a book I think called. Uh, it's called the psychology of romantic love by another therapist of mine. At one point, I'm I'm TMIing everyone. I had too many therapists in my life. Um, let me look up the psychology of. I think this is the name of it. Romantic love. 
yeah, it's called The Psychology of Romantic Love by Nathaniel Brandon. I do recommend it. Uh, it's a good good book about romantic love. Good good Valentine's Day book. Uh, if you're especially if you're single and you're looking. Hmm. <clears throat> Guess anyone <laughs> that you know. <laughs> might. I I uh it is it is funny the thing about values and religions because I I'm a very different person than I was a couple years ago or even from a year ago a very different person and so um my boyfriend and I just broke up because well we, we're kind of we we both have a very good sense of humor about it but essentially I left him for Jesus <laughs> because he's not a Christian that's part of it <laughs> but he's doing some stand up uh and we were writing some jokes together where he's doing some stand up about it, about it, about if he finds this Jesus guy, you know, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, he, uh, but then it turns out there's a song. We looked it up. There's actually a song called she left me for Jesus. It's is a country it's not song. By Eric Cartman, is it? Cause I feel like there's probably one of those. Too. No, it's a country song. It might be Hayes Carl. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, look it up. She loved me for Jesus. And if I ever find you Jesus, I'm kicking his, you know, his butt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a, I don't know. Um, I think it's hard. I think it is hard to have two different fundamental, fundamentally yeah. different belief systems. Yeah. So um, before we end, I want to end soon, but before we end, uh, there's actually one other thing I want to loop back to. Um, you know, we talked about some examples of how the, the left and the social justice um culture is kind of, I would say anti-love. I mean, we didn't get into this too much, but they, they, they would much rather you have random dates on Twitter than that you settle down and have a, a monogamous, happy relationship with kids. Um, and, uh, and a lot of this is coming from the rad, rad femmes, like the radical feminists uh, side of things. I want to, I want to talk about why uh, they're doing that and the effects it's had because Carrie and I, you were talking before the show a little bit. Um, women are not happier. Uh, we've, you know, women have been told for decades that um, they were, you know, I, I think I, I read some quotes from Margaret Small from the 70s, right? Uh, the relationship of a wife to husband was one of slavery. Um, they've been told basically that, uh, you know, sex is some sort of rape. Um, heterosexuality is about male supremacy and patriarchy. They've been told that um, they are in bondage by being housewives, if that's what they choose to do, and be home with the kids. Um, and so they've been told that for decades, and women have entered the workforce. I got some stats uh, somewhere I can pull up, but, you know, there's been women, moms are in the workforce a lot more than they were, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and... Uh, and parent and dads are helping around to the house a lot more. And there's a lot, you know, a lot more, uh, quote equality in terms of that, the, the pay gap, which I, uh, would argue is a myth anyway. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that being a, a myth generally, but even, even the mythical pay gap has, has shrunk. Um, and yet, and yet, um, female happiness is on the decline. Become, um, in fact, yeah, in fact, there's a, uh, I think I can even pull up this article. Da, 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 da. Sorry, here it is. There is a now. This is a, from a couple of years ago, or maybe ten years ago. Um, but there's a paper, the paradox of declining female happiness. Um, and I'll just let me just read the abstract of it, and we're mm -hmm. done. 
By many objective measures, the lives of women in the United States have improved over the past 35 years. Yet we show that measures of subjective well-being indicate that women's happiness has declined both absolutely and relative to men. The paradox of women's declining relative well-being is found across various data sets, measures of subjective well-being, and is pervasive across demographic groups and industrialized countries. Relative declines in female happiness have eroded a gender gap in happiness in which women in the 1970s typically reported a higher subjective well-being than did men. These declines have continued and a new gender gap is emerging, one with higher subjective well-being for men. So after all of this feminism, um, we are at a place where women are less happy. Um, and actually, if you look up stats, uh, families are more broken. Now, there's more single parenthood. Um, there's more out of wedlock births. Uh, there's just everything is kind of worse now after following the advice of the radical feminists. Yeah. Why is well, that, Carrie? Um, Camille Peglia talks about this. I think if people aren't familiar with her, they should, they should look up some of her lectures and she's a feminist. Um, but she is critical of, she's, let's say she's aware of some of the repercussions of the changes that have happened in society. And so she talks a lot about how, um, when things were more divided into the female and male sphere, you had women coming together with other women more often like doing the laundry together, um, cooking together, cleaning together. It was more of a communal society. And then you had the men, like after dinner, the women would do the dishes together and talk and, have, and the men would go out and tinker with cars and have this, you know, male camaraderie together. Um, but because we've, we've kind of gotten rid of those separate spheres and we're, we've sort of said women need to be everything and men need to be everything. I think that there's a, there's a lot of is a burden on people to do all of it, to have a career and to come home and raise the kids and to do the housework. Um, a lot of my friends who are in uh, marriages that I would say they are like feminist or egalitarian, there's this constant complaining about how the husband doesn't help enough at home with the housework and they're both working. And so it's like, but he's not pulling his weight at home. And um, it used to be that one person didn't have to do all of that. It was divided. Now, I'm not saying that that's, again, just like talking about normal and abnormal. It doesn't mean that one is superior That's or that's ideal. It's just that it didn't used to be that you had to do everything. And um, and so now I think, yeah, women are unhappy because you don't. there's not enough hours in the day to do all of that. And so um, the idea that you're, you've got two parents in the home who are working at least eight hour shifts and then coming home and trying to cook and, and do homework and clean. And uh, it just, I don't know how people make that work. I don't. And I, and I, I understand, you know, the, there's a book that came out in the fifties, Betty for Dan's the feminine mystique. This is a really popular book in women's studies. And, uh, and it kind of talked about the problem that has no name about this malaise, this, this, this uh, unhappiness that housewives felt. And the whole book is kind of about that. Well, not to say that those women were not unhappy, um, but but women today are unhappier than they were then. <laughs> so maybe yeah. what we tried didn't work. Like maybe you start off here and we can look at the effects. A lot of times feminists or SJWs don't look at the effects of things really. And it's it's just all about the, um, the, uh, the idea of what they're trying to do. They don't actually look to see the practical 
fallout of it. And so to look around and say women are unhappy, you know what their answer would be? Well, women are That's unhappy. That's because their goal today. wasn't actually for that. Like that, if they don't look at the results, it's because the goal was never their goal. Their goal is something else. Probably. Sorry, I interrupted you. What were you going to no, say? No, I mean, I just, I know what they would say is that the women are unhappy or today because men aren't doing their fair share of housework or, you know, they would find a way to bring it back to No, men. but that's, that's, that's uh, contradicted by the data. Mm -hmm. That's contradicted by the data. Um, so we are definitely closer to the feminist utopia now than we were uh, in the 50s and in the 70s. So um, um, to close this out before we go, uh, I was reading about Hungary. So Hungary, mm -hmm. like a lot of a lot of the West has seen declining birth rates. And so uh, they just instituted a policy, the prime minister, where to to boost the birth rate and um, to support families, where if you have four or more kids in a marriage, uh, the woman won't pay won't pay any income tax for life. Uh, and there are other incentives like uh, every woman under 40 will be eligible for a preferential loan when she first gets married. And then they have a. a subsidies for large families to buy larger cars. And so the whole idea is to try and, and um, see, see our system in the US, I'm starting to see, we incentivize single parent homes because you get punished uh, if you're on you welfare. Think? Yeah, I, it took me a while as a feminist to believe You're just this. now starting to see that, huh, Carrie? It's true because when you're in the other echo chamber, you don't believe that at all. You just see all the stuff that says, no, that's all a lie. But yeah, so women get, if you're a liberal and you're watching this, women get punished. Like if you're, if you don't get as much money or you, if you're on welfare and a man is in the house, it doesn't benefit you to have a man in the house. So, um, no. So Hungary's doing the opposite, though. They're trying to support families staying together. And so uh, they said the support has caused. So here's some of the results. Let's talk about results. The support has caused abortion numbers to plunge by more than a third of what they were in 2010. Uh, used to be 40,000 a year. And now they're 28,000. It's also caused a plunge in the number of divorces. Used to be 23,000. Now it's 18,000. Uh, and a surge in the number of marriages used to be 35,000 and now it's up to 50,000. And I just think that's kind of, that's a different approach than what we're taking here in the States. Like instead of doing yeah. incentives for being in single parent homes, like in incentives for families to stay together, hey, maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I think I, there's a bunch of cynical reasons why I think uh, we, we wouldn't want to, we don't do that, but um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll say one thing before we wrap it up, but if anyone's got uh, stuff that they want us to address that we haven't addressed, uh, just let us know in the chat here. Um, and, and we'll we'll try and touch on it before we wrap up. But uh, <sighs> crap, I lost my train of thought, Carrie. It's one of those days. I don't even, I was going to say something about the Benadryl. family and marriage. It's probably the Benadryl. Um, but uh, I'm sure it was yeah. great. Okay. It was it was a brilliant it was a brilliant <laughs> thing and uh, you were very impressed by whatever yeah. it was. Oh well, I, I'll just say this. Look, <clears throat> there are some great things that feminism did. Feminism telling women that they could go have careers uh, and they could go compete in the workforce if they wanted to. Um, I think few people would argue that that was a great thing for feminism to, to tell women. Um, that they don't have to stay in abusive relationships and other great things. So there's some great things that feminism um, told women they should be equal before the law, right? Lots of great things came from, from the feminists. 
but likewise, I think one of the most destructive things has come from the feminists, and and that is um, it's it's and it's actually weird given the Margaret Small essay that I, I read excerpts of earlier, where she believes that like women are the creators of all things because they they give birth. Um, feminists told women that being home and raising children and taking care of the household was less worthy of respect than being a lawyer yes. or doing whatever it was that the man was out doing and earning money. And that's a vicious lie. And a lot of women that I know, um, even if they are great in their career, um, if they, when they have children, if they can afford it as a family, they would much rather stay home and they're much happier staying home. Um, they often have this sense of guilt placed in their subconscious, I think by feminism, like, oh, shouldn't I help go have a career? I should go have a career, right? I should be, I should be having my career. Um, and I, I think it's, it's caused us as a society to devalue mothers and, um, look, I've, I can rail against a lot of things that moms do, and I know we each have our own personal relationships with our own mothers, but, um, you know, the role of being a mom and raising responsible, healthy, well-adjusted the, the kids that were raising the next generation, taking care of the home domestically while the, the dad is out earning money, um, it doesn't have to be that way. It could be the reverse. It could be, there's other ways to be. I'm not saying this is the only way it has to be, but that is worthy of our respect and admiration. And um, and I think a lot of women feel like if they, at least in Western society, they feel like if they choose that, um, they're somehow less than the high powered lawyer woman who chose a career and throws her kids in daycare. Um, which, by the way, is horrible for the children, and she's a bad mom. I'll say it right away. Uh, you're bad parents if that's what you do. Um, and uh, and it's sad because um, I think it's it's not only hurt women, it's hurt generations of kids and has can continue to. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be the mom that stays home. Uh, but it is, you know, it is what a lot of women would prefer to do and they feel guilty about it and they feel like they can't do it because um, it's not the feminist thing to do. It's not powerful and strong and independent. And, you know, the purpose of being in a marriage and having kids is, is to be dependent, right? <laughs> One person's dependent on the other person to take care of the family and make it run smoothly and, and allocate resources properly and make sure the children are raised well. And the other person is, is, dependent on the income um, that allows them to do that. And, uh, you know, that's not, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and again, it doesn't have to be the guy out working and the woman at home, but it's the way a lot of people want to do it. And uh, and they get shamed for it, I guess. You hear the phrase like, oh, are you, I'm only, I'm only a housewife, I'm only a homemaker. And it's sad. That's my rant, Carrie. Carrie's gone away. We can't hear Carrie. Um, 
Laura in chat says, the best thing I ever did was raising my son hands down. You go, Laura. Um, and I think there needs to be more credit given to people like you because um, it's uh, it's vital. And a lot of women are not raising their children well, and their children are growing up to be horrible people. So, Carrie, Carter, I hear I'm, something in my ear. You are you now? back or no? Yeah, uh, you're I, back. All right. Good. Okay. Well, I you're choppy, so I only heard part of that. I'm sorry. Something happened. Like a well. You, I'm not going to yeah. repeat it because it probably wasn't yeah. that great anyway. Because I'm on Benadryl. <laughs> I'm sure it was um, and great. I will, we'll hope it wasn't choppy for everyone. We'll hope it was just you. Uh, but it's probably time for us to wrap up. Any last words, Carrie? I I can't. No last words. You're no. giving me the choppy <laughs> signal. Okay. Um, thank you all for uh, watching, listening. Hopefully, uh, this isn't a uh, a mess of choppy words. Hopefully, you can understand me. So. Thank you all for watching. You can go to unsafespace.co, not .com, unsafespace.co. Unsafe There's no M because the M stands for Marxism, and we don't like Marxism. So please go to unsafespace.co, support the show. You can follow us on Twitter at unsafespaceco, and you can go to YouTube, and uh, we're Unsafe Space on YouTube. This show is deprogrammed. It happens every week at uh, 11 with me and Carrie every Thursday at 11 with me and the bad mamma jamma, Carrie Smith. So thanks all for watching. Happy Valentine's Day. Sorry that uh, I'm popped up on Benadryl Day. and drugged out today. Hey, there's Carrie. <laughs> She's back. Uh, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye, guys.